think the main thing that I have learned and talking to my many, many guests and many emails from my listeners is even though you think, oh gosh, I don't know what to say, saying nothing is worse than saying something sort of a bit blunt or tactless or, you know, you know, getting it wrong. I remember I was in the back of the car and I started crying. And I thought, why are you crying? What, what, like, I was so confused. And then I was like, oh, that's what dads do, isn't it? Like dads like look at you and make sure you got in cabs. And I haven't had one since I was 15. So I honestly, it was like alien behavior. <laughs> I was like, okay, he's making sure I get into a car at half one in the morning. Why? Like I know, I know how to walk. So yeah, I was so sad. And then in my head, I was like, stop making Jack D your dad. He's not your dad. <laughs> Grief literally makes you feel like no one else understands. It makes you feel alone. It lights up the same part of your brain that does um, when you have depression. And because your grief is unique and only you can experience it, it is it's true. It is an isolating experience. Hello. Welcome back to Best Sellers. I'm Phil Williams. And I'm Natalie Jameson. And I'm the problem here. I'm the reason why these episodes didn't land in January when they should have done. Uh, because I've had a very I thought you were nasty... just talking in general. In general, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> how we introduce ourselells as a duo yeah. whenever at a drinks event. I'm Phil, this is Natalie. I'm the problem. <laughs> <one. laughs> uh, yeah, I had a really nasty bacterial infection in my lungs, which took uh, two courses of antibiotics and a chest X-ray uh, to kind of get the all clear on. So I'm I'm coming out of it now. I wouldn't say I was 100. I'm not going to do a marathon anytime soon, but I'm kind of coughing less and all the rest of it. But it meant that we couldn't finish these. We'd done the, a couple of recordings for you, and we couldn't finish editing them, which is a real shame. So I'm very sorry about that. It was not Natalie's fault. It was my fault. But the good news, Nat, is that not only are we back, but you've got a spreadsheet. I have got a spreadsheet, which I think my husband especially will just be thrilled to learn that I independently started a spreadsheet. Did did he teach you how to do them? Uh, no, he didn't. I didn't. I did have to do them sometimes in my day job back you in the day. He's just really BBC. fond of them then. He loves a spreadsheet. Yeah. He's like, you know, going anywhere on holiday or anything. He's got the spreadsheet, like anything with, you know, finances or mortgage applications and stuff. Mm. He can show me a spreadsheet. Whereas I'm like, oh, look, I have this scribble on this piece of paper or like, yeah. a, let, let me just get that random note I did on my phone as well. Oh, and there's like a post-it <laughs> that's over there. I'm that sort of person when it comes to collating information. But I think I hold lots of it in my brain. So that's See, my I'm going to claim the higher ground for us both here. Mm. And I'm going to say it's because we're creatives. <laughs> so we get an idea and we have to scroll it down there and there. Yeah. We see James, my husband, would then yeah. be like, hang on a minute. Uh, he's creative too. He just right. like displays it in a different way. Right. Um, but anyway, enough about spreadsheets. There is though <laughs> one for bestsellers because we, there's loads of authors we want to chat to and share our love of what they've been writing recently. Because, you know, as ever, there are so many books out there, right, to be read. And sometimes it can be quite hard to navigate your way through what might pique your interest so let us take some of that it's not a burden but let us take some of that job for you and hopefully help well it is no it's a minefield i would say is what it is i mean i would i would say on average about three people a week will whatsapp me and go mate got any book recommendations i'm going away or i've got a journey coming up yeah yeah i get that all the time as well yeah that's why we do this yeah, we do. Uh, which it, actually, I, I love it when people say that to me. When I, you know, I'll get random WhatsApps and stuff going. Oh, like I'm, I'm on a plane tomorrow. Like, what should I pick up at the airport? Or you know, what do you recommend? And I feel that that thinks we must be doing something right. So don't worry what season it is. Don't worry if we're halfway through. If we've started new, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Just enjoy some brilliant writers coming your way in the next few weeks. In, do we want to tantalise yet or not? Uh, yeah, we can do. So we've yeah. got Jojo Moyes coming up um, a little bit later this series. I am so excited to speak to Joanne Harris, and I'm putting that out there because we haven't got a confirmed date for her yet, but <laughs> she's pretty good. She's kind of stands by her word, and I've read many of her books and um, just really love her ethos on the way she handles so much of the writerly life. Um, so I'm looking forward to that one. Uh, you've got some great thriller writers on the way. Yeah, Jason Rekulak is a guy who um, I really admire because he writes different things. So the first book of his, uh, I think it's called Impossible Fortress, is a, a comedy really, like a teen comedy about um, a kid who's part of a group of boys who's dare, their only dare in life is to go into a newsagents and buy a porno mag, right? And when he gets selected to try and fulfil this dare, 
he ends up falling for the newsagent's daughter, who's the same age as him. And so he doesn't really want to buy this mag because actually they just talk about gaming all the time. Mm. And so they end up developing a game for a games competition. So that's kind of really like Spielberg-esque 80s film story. The book he's going to talk to us about, Hidden Pictures, is a psychological thriller, which is really quite chilling, all about a woman who gets a, a child mining gig for a five, six-year-old who can draw these astonishing pencil sketches but there mm-hmm. are quite devastating scenes. I don't want to say much more because Natalie's only just started reading it and I read it last year. <laughs> um, we don't want to spoil it for anybody listening either. No, and I've just had to reassure Natalie and say, no, it's okay, you won't have nightmares because it's not it, It's not full-on horror. It's mm. it's kind of psychological thriller, I would say. So Jason's coming up. And yeah, there's loads. We've got a couple of other writers that we're just firming up for you um, that will be really good. Curtis Sittenfelt is confirmed. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about that. both really excited. Oh, I've never interviewed her. Books. Never so interviewed good, her. so good. So, yeah, so it's a treat. We're tantalising you with a fantastic array of writers. And the only rule is that if you walk into a bookshop, you'd find them at the front of the bookshop. That's the rule. It's big, popular books that we think you will like. And or so, or yeah. I would caveat that as well to say books that we think should be on those tables. Yeah, because sometimes, yeah, sometimes they miss out. Yeah, exactly. Just because, you know, they're not so well known to start with, but the books are best selling in terms of they just really grab your attention and they're incredibly well written and well thought out. So that's what I love doing as well as just discovering new authors, which is kind of what that table in the bookshops do, right? A lot of the times I'm kind of looking at those going, oh, I don't know any of those, but you want to pick it up and read the back and see if it's going to grab you um, to want to read. So that's our role here. What's Welsh for darling? I don't know. You should know. It's our next guest. Cariad. <laughs> is it? Yeah. Oh, my best friend's well. She'll be very disappointed in me. But you didn't know that, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Neris. Um, yeah, no, that's fine. Uh, oh, I didn't. Did we talk? I don't think we talked about that with her, did we? No, probably not. Yeah, no, maybe probably she not. must get that all the time. That's what but, I figured. Yeah. I figured yeah. she would. Yeah, yeah. But she's she's written this incredible book about grief. You might know Cariad from Griefcast, um, and we'll kind of get into this really early on, but I was a little bit anxious because I have an issue with death. I think quite a lot of people do. Um, so I was like, yay, like let's do a book about death and grief, but actually. What, do you mind me asking what your issue yeah. is? Is it about your own oh, mortality? Let's, let's not get into that here. Come on. <laughs> Why not? We've got all the time in the world. Yeah. No, I think we just need to get into the author. It's fine. Okay, um, sorry I asked. Well, well, like who wants to die? I guess is the, what it comes well, down to. I'd, right? I'd flip that and say, who wants to live forever? Yeah, right. Like I said, let's leave it to Cariad, shall we? <laughs> Enjoy this conversation with Cariad Lloyd. We are delighted to tell you that on this brand new edition of Bestsellers, we're being joined by a multi-talented author, writer, comedian, creator, podcaster, anything that adds in er, she can do it. And her <laughs> book is called You Are Not Alone. And it's a nonfiction book for you, which explores grief, which won't be all that unfamiliar to you if you've at all dipped into Carrie Lloyd's podcast, Griefcast, which I think, Carrie, welcome to the program, by the way. I think that started Thank 2016, you. didn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, just... It's just had its sixth birthday. Yeah. <laughs> but this is its seventh year, to be confusing. It started at the end of 2016. So, yeah, proud mother of a old podcast. <laughs> yeah, but it's doing great, isn't it? I mean, the volume of downloads and stuff. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's been about, I mean, for somebody, you know, I started it thinking I was going to do four episodes and that would be it. So <laughs> I'm nearly at 200. So, like, wow. I'm still a bit surprised um, that people still want to listen because the initial thought was, Oh yeah, no one, no one really wants. Who wants to listen to people talking about death? No one. So I thought, well, it's just an idea that's bothering me. I'll just, I'll do it, do four episodes, and you know, then I, I can let that idea go away and stop thinking. Oh, maybe I should do that. It's like it's done. Go away. Leave me alone. And then it didn't but, go away. Do you know what? Uh, the reason I think the reason why there's such universality to the pod and to your book is that. Um, so I was reading your book over Christmas. And we had two bereavements. Jolly, jolly Christmas read. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but in a way, it's, it's, it shows why it's so universal because we had news of two bereavements, not not immediate, but still familial bereavements. Yeah. And you think, okay, so what do I say to the person who's directly affected now? And I didn't really know what to type on the WhatsApp message, and yeah, that was my yeah. that's my starting point, and that's almost your starting point with this, isn't it? Is that it's something that's coming to all of us, death yeah. and you know, death of loved ones, but we really we don't really know what to say, do we? 
it's, that's the thing I think I found most frustrating in this this journey that I've been on of talking about grief constantly <laughs> on a weekly basis is it's not like it's a specialist subject. You know what I mean? It's not like mm. not everybody's going to go to university or get a mortgage or bu- have a dog, you know, mm. like things that like mm. you've really got to choose those things. Uh, but everybody will either know someone who died very close to them or at least as you said like in their family will have that experience and and most of us don't know what to say don't know what to do and it, it's sort of mad <laughs> like when you sort of think about it logically you're like well we should we should be practicing this right, right from the beginning really shouldn't we like we all know it's going to happen it's not a surprise you know we all know people get old and they will die things happen so why do we always act like when it happens like oh my god how weird a human died oh no what should i say so yeah that's the point of this book really the sort of um birthplace of it was to just provide a kind of practical useful guide to dealing with grief um in all its forms and to provide something that wasn't sort of you know that kind of the you know the other grief stuff that I had encountered when I was younger of like oh grief is this kind of very special process that must be set with a sunset and a beautiful font and be like no look this is going to happen let's just talk about it so you don't feel so stressed here we go I think it's one of those things isn't it is where either it's you know how I think it does still happen sometimes but if people talk about cancer they almost like whisper it like oh yeah 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 it's it's similar with grief or death or anything like that right there's almost a shame that people attach to it or an awkwardness that doesn't have to be there it's not saying that it obviously it's a huge subject and and you deal with it so well in this in this book but everybody deals with it differently and you just kind of have to work out which tools are going to help you and talking is always eventually going to be a good thing right yeah I think so I mean it's really individual and I say that a lot in the book like you know your grief is your grief no one else can understand it and whatever helps you you go for it (laughs) don't 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 worry um whatever's working for you as long as it's not like damaging you um but yeah I think I think we have to start from a place of honesty that's what I've tried to do in the book and be like look no one no one loves talking about this it's not like everyone's like woohoo I can't wait to ask someone <laughs> when I bump into them in the high street and they tell me their mum just died yes what a conversation we all feel that feeling of like oh oh my oh my goodness what should I say and I think we also need to acknowledge that there's a weird human thing and it makes sense when you think about us as like sort of tribal beings of like when someone talks about death, we get scared. We think, oh, I don't want to die. Oh, I don't want people I love to die. And so we we kind of like remove ourselves from that person slightly in a very like fair enough way because the instinct is like, oh, oh gosh, you know, I'm a human. I'm vulnerable. You're talking about something that makes me feel vulnerable. Ergo, I'm not going to talk to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, that, this is horrible. And it's trying to get past that kind of primal bit of your brain and be like, you're not going to die because you spoke to someone about their mum dying of cancer. Like, you're okay. So you kind of have to soothe yourself in these conversations and be like, you're okay. The people you love right now are okay, hopefully. And they're just expressing a very, very vulnerable feeling that you may one day experience. So it's kind of like trying to let that be there when these conversations happen, um, which is hard. And why I come back to what I said earlier, like you just need to practice because the more you practice it, the more you realize, oh, I, I can do this without panicking. I can do this without thinking, oh God, I don't want to talk about cancer in case I get cancer, in case someone I love gets it. Um, and then you realize, oh, right, it, that's not how it works. <laughs> it's, not, it's not contagious by talking. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, ju- it's just practicing the, the conversations, which is not easy. That's why I'd say it's not easy, but definitely worthwhile. Because Carrie, one of the things I really struggle with is um, if someone tells me, you know, it's normally like, how are you? Oh, yeah, not so good. I found out this week, so-and-so has died or whatever. I don't know what to say because I feel that anything I say isn't going to help. Yeah. So I'm trying to be empathetic towards my friend or the loved one who's lost somebody. But actually, death is so final. Yeah, yeah. We used to have this thing when I was working in news, and it, and you know you'd get breaking news. So and so's died. We'll update you on that. And I used to say to people, death is a condition that's very difficult to update. <laughs> yes. Yes. Very true. But I guess the thing that's interesting about that is like death is, but the people who are still here are, are still here and still mm. need that support. So I think the main thing that I have learned and talking to my many, many guests and many emails from my listeners is even though you think, oh, gosh, I don't know what to say, saying nothing is worse than saying 
something sort of a bit blunt or tactless or you know you know getting it wrong and we really especially I think in this country we really fear getting it wrong because then we think oh it's I, I should know I should have known what to do mm. why, why should you know mm. how to say to someone you haven't had any practice no one talks about it why on earth should should you know how to do that so it's that feeling um and I t- oh god I'm you know and even me like I will still meet people and, you know, when I'm not in my grief mode or I'm at the pub or something and they're like, oh, oh, so-and-so's dad just died. And I will still have the, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, make sure you bring it up. Oh, does it, do they look sad? Should I say, like, you know, we all go through that checklist in our head. Maybe they don't want to talk about it. And I think the key is to verbalize how you're feeling. So you literally just say, oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. I don't know what to say to you. That's really awful, but I just want you to know that I am here for you as much as I can be. And I hope that what I just said wasn't hurtful either. This is a really awful situation. Like something as muddy as that mm. is going to make the person feel, oh, well, at least they're trying, at least they're trying. Like, <laughs> and that's really what you want when you're grieving is for people to, tr- to try. Because you feel very isolated. Grief literally makes you feel like no one else understands it makes you feel alone it lights up the same part of your brain that does um when you have depression and because your grief is unique and only you can experience it it is it's true it is an isolating experience so you need people who love you to constantly kind of remind you like i am here it might not feel like i'm here or it might not feel like i can do anything but i am here and i would also say we all act with the conversation like we can only do it once so it's mm. absolutely fine to bump into someone in the high street. They say that thing. You go, oh, oh, right. Anyway, I've got to go. Um, I've got to go to the post office. <laughs> and then walk away thinking, oh, my God, I handled that so badly. It's totally fine to send a message. I'm so sorry. I handled that really badly. I, I was so shocked. I didn't know what to say. But um, I'm thinking of you. Let me know. You know, not let me know if I could do anything because that's not that helpful but to message someone after you've done the the crap conversation also fine to send a card after you've done the crap conversation also fine in a month to check in hey i remember i saw you a month ago i'm just wondering like if you'd had the funeral how that all went are you still having to deal with all the admin you know i'm happy to pop around and have a chat about it with you like you can keep making it okay or keep checking in with people rather than making it okay so don't feel like you have to get it perfect first time and if you don't that's it they'll never speak to you again because that's not true do you know what I really enjoyed about the book as well and I mean this as an absolute compliment but it's indicative of the way we've just been talking now is that it kind of goes all over the place whenever you're talking about grief like I know there is a structure to the book and I know you've set it out (laughs) in a particular way and you've got anecdotes but it's kind of circular and it zigzags and I don't think but I I found that really comforting because I don't think there's any other way that you can talk about grief and these big subjects you're always gonna your brain's always gonna go oh that's reminding me of this or oh and so it kind of felt very natural were you conscious that that was happening while you were writing my brain uh, it's very funny you said that my brain as you may have noticed and talking to me for five seconds zigzags quite a lot that's 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 how it works many tabs um but I think that's why I like talking about grief because as you said you can't break it down that clearly because it touches everything it's it's like trying to break down you know parenting really in a way or just living it's you know there's so many aspects of it that that touch other aspects and I've had that before when people are trying to interview me and they say well we just want to talk about this aspect of it like just just this and you're like but it just will bleed into this that you can't because it's your whole world and when you think about grief as a relationship between two people like completely unique when you and that person are together only you and that person understand that relationship when that person goes they're gone they're dead you have a a gap that is there in that relationship but that would have touched many aspects of your life that would have touched going out and having a drink with them or texting them or going to you know watch a film with them or them being there when you had a really sad thing happen to you like that's that touches many aspects of it so that loss will affect many aspects of it and that's the thing with grief we focus for so many years on like oh it's just about the death of the person and now we have this term secondary grief which i think is really helpful which is the other losses you experience the other things that you know you might have to suddenly sell a house or you might be you know you might lose friends after somebody you've lost a parent because they don't know what to say to you and suddenly these people that were really there for you aren't there for you so there's all these other losses that compound into it so yeah it is hard to I, I mean I did try and structure it as 
I tried but yeah it's hard to simplify grief and mm. I say that constantly in the book it's a mess that's the point of grief it's a mess so stop trying to tidy it up basically um, I think before we get too far in we should probably get you to read a bit because I know the the passage you selected actually sets up perfectly what what this is and then we can talk <laughs> in more detail about some of the nuanced elements of it if that's all right with you yes I mean sets up perfectly is very kind so I'll, I'll do my best <laughs> <laughs> This book is the result of all the conversations and information I gathered trying to find my way through my own grief. And it's most useful, it's a map. I can't plan your journey, but I can show you, sketched in felt tip pen on a bit of scrap paper, that this is the route I took. It wasn't easy, but I got there, and today I'm okay. I'm still in the club, even now, all these years later. You don't leave once you've joined, it's a life membership. Grief eases and changes and returns, but it never disappears. If you're searching for an answer to stop it, I can't offer you that, and I wouldn't trust anyone who says they can. But it isn't a hopeless quest to find ways to ease your grief, to look at your grief mess and understand it, to learn how to carry it alongside your life, learn how to hold it in a way that allows you to have joy, but also remember remember that person and acknowledge the sadness. I know at the start of grief, it can seem impossible it will ever change. That feeling is grief. But like all things, it does change. The depths of futility, of pain, of sadness are all part of the process. Each grief is unique. I will never fully understand yours, as you will never understand that spring in 1998. But we have all felt the agonising pain and somehow made it through the night. Beautifully done. I'm glad you picked that passage because that's a passage I picked to ask you about. Oh, good. <laughs> um, so you kind of you've you've helped me. And the, the, one of the things I wanted to ask you about it was the the club element to it, and mm. and I think uh, and I want to come on to some of the other manuals that are around that you discuss in this as well. But I think what we all look for when we're immersed in something stressful is we all need a fix, and I think we're in a quick fix society. Yeah. And so I think um, we go through grief and we go, okay, well I've heard there's five stages of it, so I'll, I'll try and get to the end of those as quickly as possible, <laughs> or um someone said to me grief comes in waves so okay well when will those waves finish when will it end i need yeah. to know when it will end yeah and i think i can the reason i wrote that book is i was that person you know i right. was absolutely that person being like brilliant i've got this look i'm very good at researching i'm really good at reading i will find out how to fix this to end it and then i'll be done i don't mind putting the time into research i'm happy to do that and as long as at the end the grief effed off sorry i don't know if i can swear on your podcast yeah do what you say what you want i mean especially when it's from the heart that's a natural process isn't it you know if you mentioned mortgages earlier if we're going to apply for a mortgage you go right okay what do i have to do well i've got to fill all these questionnaires out for the lender right okay well i'll do that but at some point i know i'm reaching an end i'm reaching an end yeah and we 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 live for linear narratives like that's why we like films that's why we like things you know to be tied up neatly we don't like things that are hanging because it makes us feel uncomfortable because we're like well well, how what happened at the end what you know what did they fall in love what what it makes us feel anxious and that's why grief is so (laughs) fucking difficult (laughs) because there's no end there's no end to it and i fought that for so long and we should say so my dad died when I was 15 I realized I hadn't said that um so I've been talking about this and thinking about it for a long time and I kept looking for this end and not finding it and then I turned that into well you're doing something wrong clearly you're doing something wrong like everyone else has finished finished the quiz and for some reason you're still in the exam hall like writing so it's your fault and then when I started the grief cast the podcast and I started interviewing people who were at the beginning of the journey, at the same place as me, further ahead, and none of us were finished. And it literally hit me. I thought, oh, I see. <laughs> it, 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 you don't need an ending. You just have to accept this is going to be with me. But you know you, you just said further ahead. How do the people yes. who are further how are you judging that? Are they further ahead just purely chronologically? Oh, chronologically, yeah, because right. I think when you're grieving, if you speak to someone, so I'm 20 plus years. And I know when I speak to people who are like five years in, and then they speak to me and I say, well, I still feel sad. Sometimes they're like, are you joking? (laughs) (laughs) What? No, you're 20. You need to be fine. Like I want to know 20 years, I'm going to be fine. And what I'm trying to say with this book is you will be fine. Grieving doesn't mean I'm, you know, wake up every morning, I fall to my knees and I sob and I have a photo of my dad that I like weep next to. No, grieving means I have a really brilliant life. I, you know, enjoy myself. I love, I have a good time. But if you would say to me, are you still sad occasionally your dad died? Yeah, I am. 
And that's okay. That's okay. That's what we need to change. This idea that instead of looking for an ending, it's okay to still occasionally be sad about something. Once you switch that, like reframe it in your head, then it's it's much easier to carry that grief because I don't feel guilty about it. I don't feel ashamed about it. I don't feel like I'm doing something wrong. I just feel like, oh yeah, it's just, it's just there. It always will be because he was a really important person. <laughs> so of course I'm still occasionally sad. That's okay. I don't have to berate myself for it. Yeah. I also really like that you discuss anticipatory grief mm-hmm. as well. Um, because I think it kind of works both ways, right? You may have had not had somebody huge die in your life, but um you may have had people who've had really difficult illnesses. So again, it's I think the really challenging thing when you talk about anything like this is you can only ever really relate it to yourself a lot of the yeah. time. So um my dad had a stroke a really serious stroke when I was 20. So I kind of felt like, and I'm in my late 40s now. So I feel like, and he's still alive. (laughs) I feel like I've been dealing with that for quite a long time. My mum's had breast cancer three times. She's on her third bout now. So I think, again, you kind of, I found the book really helpful to just acknowledge that, yeah, you've already kind of started that process, even though you may not have had the ultimate um, death coming yet but um yeah I I found was that kind of quite a big moment for you too when you discussed this on your podcast and and wrote about it as well yeah I'm really sorry that sounds really hard (laughs) a lot to deal with and I think I think what that comes into and I'm so glad you said it because I can never say anticipate (laughs) anticipatory when I said it I was like oh I every time it's on the show I'm like (laughs) and then the guest said it and I'll be like yes yes what you just said anticipate pre-grief yeah pre-grief pre-grief guys um because what I find so what I find so interesting about that is is the rules we've made for grief so that's what I'm trying to break down some of these ideas that I just think don't don't serve us. So the idea that um, grief has an end, the idea that there's five stages you need to get through, the idea that um, you can't grieve until someone's dead, like that's it. If you're not in, you're not in the full club yet. Like anticipate, anticipatory grief exists as soon as someone gets a diagnosis, as someone has a serious illness. Of course, your your brain begins a grieving process, and that's not to say that it won't change when when they when someone mm. does die of course it will and that is a very different experience but it's about accepting this this grief in our life and going again it's okay it's okay to feel these things and have those feelings of an of pre-grief rather than going no i'm not allowed them that's not proper grief grief looks like this grief should be this and i think we just as soon as we can move away from what grief should be and actually just look at what it is it's like well if you know your dad has a straight when you're 20 are you sad about it yes of course you are is that something that's affected everyone of course it has are you allowed feelings of course you are rather than this like oh well that's not proper it's not proper grief you know Mm. like this idea that we have and I talk about that in the book as well with you know even when it comes to like miscarriage baby loss child loss we do what Mm. we describe on the show's um grief maths so I've had it as well people say oh your dad died when you're 15 how old are you now oh oh so it was a while ago <laughs> oh okay or if someone's you know loses a, a pregnancy and people you can see people going oh you were four weeks no oh, okay like trying to work yeah, out yeah. how sad someone should be my favorite one of those is when someone's older when they die and they say oh, they know, oh yeah so and so's just died and they go how old yeah. are they and you say 92 oh they had a good um, knock they had a good they had a good innings yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As if that, oh, well, that makes it all right. They've qualified for death now. Yeah, You're in that band fine. where it's okay to die. Yeah. Oh, you well, then you shouldn't be sad. 92, come on, wipe your tears. <laughs> like, we're so, and it's because we don't want people to be sad. Like, it comes mm. from a good place. We don't want people to be sad. And what we want to do is quantify everything. It's such a weird, we're like such robots. <laughs> like, someone tells us something emotional and we go, oh, how sad should I be? How mm. sad do I think you should be? Rather than going, <laughs> they're sad that's sad maybe they just need to be sad like it's all trying to fix like you said it comes from trying to fix not wanting people to be upset rather than being like oh this is tough they're sad how are we going to deal with this Mm. I'm just going to have to sit with them in this sadness for a little bit and allow yourself to do that but my god that takes practice like it's not easy and how have you found it authoring this book and obviously fronting the podcast for a number of years now too knowing I mean I'm aware that I just did it myself like people tell you their grief stories unprompted you know whenever you're out and about and just knowing that you've really opened yourself up to allow that does it ever get too much how do you kind of keep a boundary for yourself in that 
Well, thank the gods for therapy. (laughs) (laughs) I I actually, I wrote about that in the book. I started therapy Mm. at the same time as I started the podcast, but completely, well, I didn't think it was conscious, but obviously it probably was because I was on a waiting list. And so they just came through and said, oh, you've, you know, you can finally see someone. And then I started the podcast. (laughs) So that is a huge part of it for me, because yes, I really, obviously, I really don't mind people sharing the stories at all. It's part of the job and it's a privilege to, to hear those stories. And what I think I've got better at is understanding that people don't need me to fix them Mm -hmm. because that's how I used to feel of like, oh, well, let me tell you how you're going to be okay. And and now I try and go, oh yeah, that sounds really hard. Mm. I'm really sorry. And it's it's such an unusual behavior. Like you can tell people like, oh, you know, like we just did there. Like, oh no, no don't acknowledge my sadness. It's fine. It's all right. It's don't fine. Worry. Make it disappear. And um, <laughs> actually, it's fine just to be like, oh, that's yeah, that's hard. Just to, I interviewed um the brilliant Rob Delaney and his mm. brilliant book that just came out, A Heart That Works, about the death of his son Henry. And we were talking about how obviously, you know, with child death, people find it so hard, and I, I, I so do I. It's it's hideous to talk about. It's really hard. But we were saying, like, really what you what someone is asking for is about four seconds of your time. Mm. Really. Mm. If you can just for four seconds not change the subject, feel your own emotions, panic. If you can just for four <laughs> seconds be like, oh, that is really hard what they're going through and allow them just to pause and give them that. That that actually is what most people want. Yeah. You don't want, like... A half hour therapy session unless you know unless you're paying for the therapy session <laughs> let's remember we are british okay yeah so exactly like, exactly on. you don't want full a full breakdown <laughs> but just to give someone four seconds of like oh gosh that's really really difficult and to not change the subject and to pause and wait for them to go yeah it is anyway how are you like let them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. be the instigator of that like it's it's not that it's not that much but we do just it's the panic it is the panic so um, yeah, in answer to your question, zigzagging around as I do, I have a lot of therapy. <laughs> Still do. Do you know, just relating to what you were just saying as well, I think sometimes, certainly I've been in a position where when I've told somebody about a bereavement, I've not necessarily wanted them to show any empathy towards me. I just want them to be aware that it might affect my behavior. I, I'm yeah, kind of yeah, telling yeah. you because in a minute I might go mental at you or I might just start <laughs> crying for no good reason. Or, yeah, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah and that, again, it's that thing of, I talk about in the book that we don't have... Um, the black armbands anymore so we yeah. don't have this victorian way which we can communicate and just say to someone it's much harder to say oh yeah gosh this happened actually and so i might be a bit teary today and like what why why don't we just say, say it because i think most of us if someone said it to you you would no one would be like oh my god why do they tell me like most mm. people would be like oh god i'm so sorry of course thank mm. you for telling me can i get you a cup of tea but mm. we the the griever feel like oh god this is so silly i shouldn't say anything and i think it's a two i'm a it's slightly controversial in the grief world but i think it's a two-way street i don't think it's enough to say oh all the people out there should practice talking about death and they should get better at it i also think grieving people need to be strong and be brave and say hey I, I need you to acknowledge this I know that's so hard I know it's not always possible but I think we like if we can start again practicing like you said saying I'm just telling you this just happened so you know and letting it sit there and hang in the air <laughs> for four seconds and then being like oh the world didn't implode they didn't fire me from my job they just said oh okay gosh sorry sorry about that which I think that probably comes with like all many feelings as well and yes, grief yes. is kind of tied up with a lot of them it was reminding me we were just sitting on the sofa last night my daughter had already gone to bed she's 14 my son's nine and me my son and my husband were just watching uh, the US version of Ghosts which is actually getting really good I'm really oh, into yeah. it yeah the characters <laughs> are developing very well um but I just like had a bit of a I think it's perimenopausal um a bit like premenstrual as well and I just sat there and I was like can somebody just make me some toast because I think I'm going to cry and both <laughs> my son and my husband looked at me and went okay <laughs> okay. okay. Like, Thank you very much. I don't know why, but yeah, that would really help me right now. Yeah, that's so great. If you can get asked for your needs, I mean, my God, yeah. that is like that's so important. It's so important. And if you don't, it's and I do understand with grief, it's really hard. But if you don't say, it is hard. Like it's two way. You know, everyone mm. needs to get better, and everyone needs to try and have these conversations and practice them. But if you can also say, and I think. 
this is hard. I'm just trying to think if I've ever done that. But it's it is you could say to someone, oh, when you talk about my dad dying, do you mind just like checking if I'm in the mood for it? You know what I mean? Like you can. Yeah. There's other ways you can be. If you feel like somebody's done it in, in not quite the right way, like I feel like we can have these conversations, but we're all so afraid of upsetting and offending each other. It's not easy. Don't. I'm not saying it's easy. <laughs> it's definitely not easy. Can we? Um, I mentioned it earlier about the the five stages of grief, yes. I, which I just kind of use as a throwaway phrase. But it's actually this is a comes from a book from 1969, Elizabeth Kubler Ross's On Death and Dying, which you reference in your book, um, and you're critical of it, but you also are very encouraging of the fact that she wrote the book in the first place. So I wonder whether you could explain that kind of juxtaposition of your views for us. Yeah, it's the first chapter, and the chapter basically is fuck off five stages. <laughs> but I wanted to, you know, when I said that, I thought that's quite that's quite bold, Carrie. Um, I want to caveat that very clearly with like she's an amazing woman. She's incredible. Elizabeth Kubler Ross was an amazing woman, and so she wrote this book in 1969 on death and dying. Um, she was working in palliative care, so she was working in hospitals because hospices didn't really exist then. She was part of the hospice movement. She was part of that process that start, said oh, we should have places where people go to die rather than being in hospital and she was working in America at a time when they wouldn't even say cancer they would just call everything a malignancy and they weren't telling people they had cancer so people were going into hospital they say oh you might have a malignancy we're going to give you some medicine they didn't know the medicine was basically palliative care they were going to die so they literally weren't telling people people were sitting there thinking oh that's good I'll get better I don't need to make any plans or have any conversations with my family because I'm getting better and when you think say that out loud it's insane it's like oh my god so people just dying not knowing they were dying of cancer so she wrote this book very quickly actually after doing a a research project and it, it became you know instant bestseller was incredible and she was you know one of the first people to talk about death and say hey i think when someone's dying of a terminal illness specifically cancer we should tell them <laughs> and when we do tell them this is what happens they go through five stages so when you tell someone they're going to die they seem to go through these five distinct stages of um i'll forget now but like denial anger bargaining depression and acceptance i think i just did them all and that's they get to a place where they accept they're going to die and if you tell them this, it means they have a bit of a, a peaceful death and they can talk to their family and it's just a much better way of dying. I mean, full fair play. Absolutely agree with you. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. That's, that sounds like a good idea. But what happened was it started getting applying, it started being applied to people who were grieving. I don't know when, and I don't know how, I can't find the change, but it just became, oh, when someone dies, you go through five stages. It was never ever ever meant for that ever Mm. and she even said years later it's kind of been misinterpreted and she reworked it and it's not to say you don't go through distinct phases of grief but you don't go through five and it's not linear and you don't end up at acceptance and if you ask anyone in the club they will tell you um no i haven't found myself just acceptance where i don't think about it and it's absolutely fine and i have no um, i'm new you know neutral on my emotions for it so when i started writing the book I sort of realized, you know, like, even though it was written in 1969, it's still used as an example. And I still, when I do live events for Griefcast, people still come up to me and say, oh, I don't think I'm doing my five stages very well. It's, it's 2023. Mm. <laughs> like, what? But carry on. So just to know what's interesting for me is, so you, they're still referring to this book from 69 in 2023. Yeah. Your book's out now in 2023. But I can't think of anything in between that's had the cultural punch through. No. Can you? No, no, and not at all. And I talk about them in the book because the reason why it's such a, wouldn't it be great if it was true? Like, that's why I think it's got the cultural punch through because we want it to be true. Yeah. Like, that is so tasty. Oh, five stages now, I'm fine. Sign me up. Yeah. Like, and if you said to someone like, oh, it's like a pyramid scheme. Like, oh, you do this and like join up and you'll you'll be a millionaire. Like, we all know anything that sounds too easy. We're like, mm, that sounds a bit dodgy. That's probably not true. That's not how life works. But with grief, oh, yeah, brilliant. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Five stages and I'll be done. And I get so many emails, people saying, oh, you know, I want to get to the end. <laughs> And you're like, I bet you do, but that's not 
That's not what grief... This is the thing. Grief is not asking you to get to the end. Grief is asking you to feel. And grief is saying to you, you love this person, or even if you had a complicated relationship with them and you felt like you didn't love them, they affected you in some way and their death is making you feel all these feelings, sadness, regret, loss, pain, happiness, joy, all of these feelings. And grief is saying to you, feel them. You have to feel me and then I will calm down. And five stages kids us cheats us into like oh if you do them in the right order you win and then it's done <laughs> just i don't know any aspect of life so that's true for i don't so, know anyone who's getting the t-shirt that says grief completed it mate yeah exactly done the levels <laughs> got the big baddie and i don't really play it anymore i mean you can certainly i definitely having spoken about it for so long i'm at a place i wouldn't call it acceptance i would say i've accepted that grief is a part of my life and always will be and that for me is very peaceful so then when it does crop up, when I have a grief wave, when I feel sad, I don't fight it. I don't run away from it. I just feel like, oh, okay, hello, here you are again. <laughs> thought, thought you'd arrive. Been a few months, been a few years even as it goes further on. So it's, it's again, reframing it in your head of like, accept that you're going to feel like this forever, but not that you're going to feel broken into pieces. You can't get out of bed. Like I do, it check grief changes. But the idea that five stages and like you said, you can just walk away from it. I'm really sorry. <laughs> but you, you write really beautifully as well about so much of it is about recognizing when these things happen. And as I mentioned earlier, you, you've woven various anecdotes from people throughout the book as well, which beautifully illustrates this point. There were, there were two that really struck out for me. There was one from Felix White. Oh, who yeah. I really, really like Felix White. Um, I really like the way that he kind of talks and uh, obviously his music with the Maccabees, but he talks about he lost his mum when he was younger and he had a recent birthday now. Yeah, yeah. And he just had a tantrum and he's like, somebody offered me a cake. And he's like, I'm going to throw the cake. I just know in his head, he was like, I'm just going to throw the cake. And like that kind of came from acting out. Yeah. And I think I've talked to Felix a lot because he, I'm pretty sure he lost his mum when he was 14. I lost my dad when I was 15. And so we are what in I call the teenage grief club mm -hmm. and it's a very specific niche of you didn't get to be a teenager because you had to deal with grief and you know his mum was very ill beforehand as well so he had to you know deal with that and, and not muck around and be stupid and who cares and I'm going to go out tonight no one no, nothing matters because you're at home you're like oh it does you might die and so <laughs> it's a really um it's a really strange place to grow up, the Teenage Grief Club, because you get very old very quickly, but you are still a teenager, so you don't really understand what why you've got old very quickly. So yeah, his example in his being in, I think he was it was like I think he was nearly thirty by that point. Yeah, and he had this birthday party, and he was like, "I'm going to throw a cake because I never got to do this. I never got to <laughs> do these things when I was a teenager." And he just threw his cake into the audience. They were like, obviously, probably loved it, but um, yeah, that Teenage Grief Club is a is a strange niche. And everyone has their, you know, their own niche of the grief club, which mm. I, I talk about a lot in the book. But I um, I really wanted the book not just to be my voice because my story, the grief story, although it's sad, the point of the book is to say it's not like, oh, I had this unbelievably strange, unique experience. It's like, no, no, look how many of us are here. There's so many. And having interviewed nearly 200 people, I took extracts from the podcast and just every time I hit on a point that, I was like, oh, there's like at least seven or eight of us that said that. I would find the quote to be like, okay, this is this is where we all agreed. <laughs> we all said this and we all said this. Even though your grief is unique, there's all these touching points that mm. I think we can share. And I just Teenage to Grief briefly... Club, great name for an indie band, by the way. Yeah. It's good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. PGC, Teenage yeah. Grief Club, yeah. I know. I just only... wanted to mention briefly the um the sweet one of the sweetest stories I thought that again was I think an example that there's a lot of humor in this book too, but a lot of so much heart in it as well. Was could you would you mind just saying your Jack D experience? Of... <laughs> it's so embarrassing. I wrote I it down it. and then I <laughs> yeah I've had to talk about it I'm like oh god um so yeah I, I I'm a comedian that's another of my of my jobs and I was on a gig we got sent somewhere like I don't remember it's like Dorset or something we had to drive there and drive back and some gigs if they're like super organized they'll be like this oh meet at Clapham station you're all getting in and it was something like a panel show that Jack was hosting I didn't know him that well but he's you know a very very lovely man and we'd driven down and it'd been fine we'd driven back and it's like really late at night and they're, they're dropping us all off at Hammersmith and it's like pouring with rain horrible London night it's about half one in the morning and um 
Jack, it was me and another girl and then two guys and not, you know, not. I could tell he was a bit more worried about the girls, which is absolutely fine. So we got out of the car and he was he got out of the car in the rain and he watched me get into the taxi. And the whole time he was doing it, I thought, what's he doing? It's so weird. Why is he watching me get into it? I'm getting in the taxi. And he gave me like a thumbs up, like, you got your taxi? Yep. Because we were sort of like pulled over in the, in the side of the road at the by Hammersmith Station. It's really busy. He gives me thumbs up and looks at me. And I was like, yeah, yeah, got my taxi. Like, what's, okay. A bit weird. And I got in and I looked back and he was still looking, like just checking. She's definitely gone. And I remember I was in the back of the car and I started crying. And I thought, why are you crying? What, what, like, I was so confused. And then I was like, oh, that's what dads do, isn't it? Like, dads, like, look at you and make sure you've got in cabs. And I haven't had one since I was 15. So I honestly, it was like alien behavior. <laughs> I was like, okay, he's making sure I get into a car at half one in the morning. Why? Like, I know, I know how to walk. And it was just so funny <laughs> to me that I didn't recognize it. That's what made me cry, that I wasn't even... I was like an alien who'd never had a father. I was like, it was like, oh, I don't really understand what you're doing. Oh, I see nurturing father figure. Right. Yeah. That is not something I recognize straight away. So yeah, I was so sad. And then in my head, I was like, stop making Jack D your dad. He's not. Your dad. <laughs> <laughs> it, was like, it just was too, he's kind of like, my, it doesn't look anything like him, but my dad had brown hair and was shortish. And so I, I was like, oh yeah, you look, and he was about, he's probably about the age then that my dad was when he died. So I think it just all, triggered a response which you know we talk about so much on the show like you can see someone in MS and from the back they like just look like your person buying the thing that your person used to buy and it just you just get hit with this oh my god oh my god there they are there they are oh no they're not and it's um yeah I wanted to write about it to say like it's all right if you have these cheesy moments it's okay <laughs> you're not alone <laughs> I wanted to ask you about the writing process because we are a books podcast how did you find getting this all down onto the page and did you enjoy the process of writing it is it are you used to that because you're writing as a comedian and you know when you're doing your other bits of broadcast work it was really hard <laughs> I'm like I've been thinking about like should I lie and say oh it was a pleasant no it was really hard I um for many reasons it's hard to write about grief when you're writing comedy obviously like you you get to have jokes and I did put jokes into this like there it, it is yeah. surprisingly funny occasionally but um you know, I was having to write about my, like, like the depths of my grief that I hadn't really investigated. But what also Can I just say, was... sorry, you should put that oh, quote on your own back cover. <laughs> Surprisingly <laughs> funny occasionally, Carrie Ann Lloyd, my own book. <laughs> I have said to people when I've asked, I said, it's cheerier than you'd expect. Um, <laughs> yeah, I got, the, I got the deal in 2019. And then I found out I was pregnant with my second child. So I was like, okay, that's fine. Like, you know, we just got to get lots of childcare, make sure really supported on that. And, you know, it's my second time round, So I knew what to expect. He was born five days before the first lockdown. So I went from having a book and a newborn to deal with to a global pandemic and my other child at home and no working space at all. And my, all the care, you know, my mum was going to come and help. She couldn't come around. So it was just, completely isolated and then I went from which you know that in itself was a bit tricky and then having to write about grief when the world was grieving so like every time I that sat at my desk sucks. oh my god the timing it was so it was so weird actually because I went into my little grief cave to research, you know, ancient grief rituals or what the Victorians did or the, you know, what grief psychologists are saying we should do instead of the five stages. So I'm like fully in grief research. And then I would turn around and look at the world and the world was feeling exactly as I did. So it was very strange because in one way it was horrible because I, I never got distracted. I never got to just go out with my friends and have a night off from death. <laughs> You know, you turn the radio on, it's like another, you know, another counter that telling you how many people have died that day while you've also been researching how people die. So it felt it felt like immersive therapy. Um, so that that process was was unfortunate timing, I guess, is a polite way of saying <laughs> sort of like, wow, could have done without the world also collapsing as I had to write about my own grief. But then I don't know, I'm a very sort of practical person. I was like, well, is it easier because everybody is also feeling the same way you are and willing to have intense conversations in the way that you are right now? <laughs> um, so it was hard, but it felt kind of necessary. Uh, also with the pandemic, I felt like, oh, this book might actually be useful. So it drove me a little bit to go, this isn't just like a super niche club, like this has actually affected all of us some somehow. So perhaps this book is needed 
in a way that maybe in 2019 it was like, oh, sure, yeah, sure, some of us want to read that. And is there more to say? Is there a second book or would you like to there use this as a springboard into fiction? Do you like the idea of sitting at a laptop and creating something on the written page? Yeah, I do now. I didn't at the start. <laughs> I think I'm I'm a very collaborative person. I'm an improviser. I have a show called Ostentatious where I do improvise Jane Austen and and most of my comedy life has been working with other people. So it was a real switch to doing it by myself. But I feel like I've I've got there. So yeah, I would like to write a lot more and a lot more fiction. I think I'd definitely like a break from full-on grief chats. <laughs> and maybe write something silly next, just have a break, and then come back to it, because I'll always come back to it. I've got one more selfish question, um, mm. if you don't mind, and, and that is... And it's been on my mind whilst we've been talking to you. And that is that uh, I'm in the fortunate position of, at time of recording, having both parents still alive. What are the conversations I should be having with them now before it's Ooh, too late? That's a good question. Not selfish at all. So um, I always say, start with, the, start with the great icebreaker, funerals. Just start with funerals because nobody minds talking about funerals, even though even if people are icky about it, it's not like the worst conversation. So you could start with very simple, like, do you want to be buried or cremated? What music do you want? Do you want flowers? Is there anyone you don't want there? Because you never, you could be surprised by that answer. <laughs> like, really? You actually hate them. Okay. Um, <laughs> like, where, like, what do they want to do with the ashes if they want to be cremated? There's an amazing, there's lots of books. The one I've seen recently is called The Death Book, which um, it's actually made by a woman who makes these amazing things called space masks, which are like relaxing eye masks. And she um, had a lot of trouble after one of her parents died. She didn't have the information. So she created this thing called The Death Book, which is just like a red notebook binder with all the questions. And you just give it to the person and they just write down exactly what they want. And then you just say, by the way, that book is in this drawer. So I think that even that can be just so helpful. Super so handy. Super handy. Just write it all down. Here's a book with all the questions. If you can have that conversation and that goes okay, <laughs> then I think you can start having the next conversation, which is really hard, which is like advanced care planning, which is something that I only knew about from, from doing the grief cast of what kind of medical treatment does somebody want if they go, if there's an accident, if they have a stroke, if they go into a vegetative state, like all this stuff that I think we get much more squeamish talking about, but actually... If you speak to any palliative care nurse or palliative care doctor, consultant, you know, people who work in hospices, they will say, please have those conversations. Like, please, please, because you don't want to be having them when it's too late. They've already died or they're on morphine and they can't answer you or everyone's so full of emotion. They they don't know what to say. So I think once you again, it's practice because I've got better at the the lighter end of it of like funerals, funeral chat. I can I over the six years of doing this show have got moved on to the other slightly more heavy conversations where you're like, Oof, okay, I'm actually going to ask my mum this question, and it's horrible. And then afterwards, you're like, right, change the subject, have a cup of tea, don't want to think about that. But to just sort of open the door and be like, just what do you what do you want? And also, where are the things? Where are the passwords? How, like, <laughs> is there a will? Where are your bank accounts? Like, just the very basic, like, even if it's, you know, oh, all my money's under the bed in your dad's bedroom, but he doesn't know. Like, just the very basic um, information that you, that you just can't get once someone's gone. And I, I get so many people saying, Two stories are told on the show all the time. The one where we had the conversation, we prepared, we opened the drawer, everything to the letter was done. It was really easy. And therefore we could begin our grieving process. And the other conversation is we didn't know where anything was. We didn't know what had happened. They didn't have a will. This wasn't in someone's name. Everything got, you know, got taken to somewhere else. Because And then they you're dealing with sad men, as they jokingly call it, when you want to be grieving. And the other thing is um, not rushing to tell some institutions. You know, some extended family have told the bank too quickly. The bank have shut accounts down and then they've got oh, no access to money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, stuff like that. I think it's really important that you know where it is, but you don't have to, yeah, you don't have to act immediately. <laughs> um, but that often happens because people, when someone dies, you feel useless. Like you just, that is the immediate feeling. It's useless. Even if you knew they were going to die, even if it's terminal illness, you feel like, why why did that happen? How did I not stop that? And so the getting on with the admin can sometimes be like um, 
a soothing process of like, well, I, I'm going to call the bank, I'm going to do this. And that's going to make me feel like today it's okay. I did something. So it can be quite a common feeling to like get on with it. But again, you don't have to, but just have the knowledge, knowledge is power, like have that with you. And you mentioned it in the book as well. Those questions that you wish you'd always asked, like, did yeah. you ever like learn this sport or did you do that? Or, or even kind of how did you feel about some things? And I think so my dad as well, he's now in a care home, he's got dementia and Alzheimer's. And I kind of wrestled with a quite a lot of, oh, should I should have asked this. And it's it's quite a difficult relationship with him anyway. And I was like, he's never going to actually answer yeah. those things. And I think sometimes accepting that when it gets to that late stage in life, you think, oh, I wish I'd asked like this, this and this. And you're like, well, the person that he is, was anyway, he never would have answered it anyway. Yeah. So it's hard, isn't it? I think... It's knowledge, isn't it? It's like, did I try and ask or do I know the answer already? Yeah. Is there someone else I can ask who actually can know me and, and can provide a different answer on a different opinion of them? Because really what you're trying to do with grief is piece someone back together who's not there. Mm -hmm. And you never will. Like, you'll never piece them back. And I've had it with my dad of, like, since I've started talking about him publicly, you know, like certain relatives or people who knew him might have sent me an email and it's just like little nuggets you're like oh right that's interesting now I see that I can see mm. that mm. and the same thing can happen with you like as you get older and you get nearer understanding what they might have gone through or as a parent as a like, the life they lived and you think oh I see that's why they did that because that's how it feels to be this age I didn't know that when I was younger I thought they were mad oh I thought they were being a pain in the ass um, <laughs> oh, I see. Well, they were just really tired they were just really tired yeah I definitely had that my dad of being like oh yeah god I thought he was such so crap at something you're like oh he was really tired he was really really tired and stressed running his own business <laughs> so yeah fair play um it's never it's never simple we always end with trying to get some other reading recommendations yes. from our guests um and just, it doesn't have to be non-fiction and be fiction I'm also always pushing for cookbooks because I love a good cookbook mm. um but yeah anything that you would recommend people dip into reading right now well I, I I'm on a bit I've because I this book is was such a part of my life for so long um and I couldn't really do any other reading that wasn't death I'm like joyfully reading at the moment so I've just <laughs> finished loads I finished the marriage portrait by Maggie O'Farrell mm -hmm. that's right isn't it that's yeah. I really enjoyed that um if you like grief I'd also recommend Hamnet that she wrote I still haven't tried if I've got Hamnet on my oh. Kindle I've had it for a really long time but I'm kind of like I know it's gonna really like can I just clarify me. we're saying Hamnet yeah. in case people Hamnet. haven't Hamnet yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah so that was there's no Yorick uh, in this one no, well, it's it's about Shakespeare's son who was called Hamlet, although there's many spellings, so it was also called Hamlet. So the play, you know, so but he was mainly written down as Hamlet, and it is about the death of Shakespeare's son. It is a I'm not gonna lie, you need to go in with your tissues, but it is so good. The writing is so brilliant. Um that I yeah it, I would I thoroughly recommend it although didn't you just say your children are 14 and 9 yeah wait don't read it yet because <laughs> mine are really young so I think he's 12 in the book yeah. and I spoke to a lot of people who said they had to wait till everyone was past 12 or it was so far away that <laughs> yeah but my, my marriage portrait I really enjoyed I'm a massive Hilary Mantel fan and I feel like she hits that Mantel kind of historical detail but also good story um, not quite as detailed as like awful but like uh, the marriage portrait is really interesting it's set in like the Medici's Italy yeah it's really interesting and I'm also reading one I'm halfway through called Vagabonds which is by Elagosa Osade I hope I'm saying that right which is like magical realis realism set in Lagos mm. it's absolutely amazing I've never read anything like it like it's just Lower short stories and but sort of sewn together with this kind of spirit of Lagos who's kind of like this mischievous figure that causes loads of mischief and weirdly old-fashioned and modern exactly at the same time like smashed together but that is absolutely brilliant and I just started because I, I have many on the go um Ordinary People by Diana yeah. Evans is that mm -hmm. right yeah that's I'm loving that I'm halfway through that and I read a lot of different books on the go. Um, Elif Shafak, Shafak, 10 minutes and 38 seconds, something, something to yeah. change the world or something, which I'm also very much enjoying. So all fiction, because I'm having a break, because I just read, I just did my own non-fiction. So I'm treating myself to... Can I ask you something people ask me whenever I say I've got more than one book on the go? How do you yeah. juggle your books? Because you mentioned about five there. Yeah, I, well, I have one book. So like the marriage portrait 
I actually did take out with me, even though it's very heavy. Normally the heavy book is like bedtime reading. Yeah. And then I have stuff on the Kindle that I read when the kids are trying to get sleep because I have to be in the room holding hands at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then I can I can read that and like not not obviously I can see the page. And then um yeah, I have a commute book. Like it's take it with me because it's light and it's easy. And uh, so I've just yeah, to be fair, I finished marriage portrait and Hamnet. And so the two Vagabonds is on the bedside table and Elif Shafak is coming with me and or no people's on the Kindle. <laughs> so I didn't used to. I used to be quite religious about no, you read a book, you only read that so it's finished. And then I had kids and it's impossible. So yeah, and I do the same too. And I also read think when that you can. If you kind of change your thinking about it so that it's a bit like you can you we can all manage to watch multiple TV series yes, at exactly. a time, right? So yeah. it's kind of the same with books. I'm, I might not be in the mood for that one that I yeah. downloaded the other day. So I want to kind of do the fun one or I want a bit of nonfiction. So I have the same. I have multiple on the go. Yeah. I've just finished Michael Rosen's new nonfiction. I got sent a proof, Getting Better, if for a nonfiction recommendation, which was just brilliant. He's so brilliant. And that was a really lovely, like, a, yeah, like a really enjoyable nonfiction read just to spend time with someone. So yeah, it depends what mood you're in. And treat yourself. Don't try, don't be so strict. <laughs> <laughs> What an amazing time we've had with you, Carrie Adder. Thank you so much for coming on Bestsellers. We've really, really enjoyed talking with you. I hope so. I'm sorry. I talk a lot. So <laughs> it's okay. Because it's not, it's very it's, hard to You're talking to two people who can talk a glass eye to sleep. You've got no oh, problem great. with talking this on this podcast. This is my people. Yeah. This is what I, want. I don't want people this who are like, tribe. It's all good. yeah, the people who do the massive silence. I'm like, I can't do it, guys. I can't. Thank you so much. It was so Thanks. nice to talk about the book. I really appreciate it. Some brilliant recommendations there from Cariad Lloyd. And uh, I know you're a fan of the grief cast as well, aren't you? And you've listened to that. Yeah. And I, you know, I just, she's one of those people, I think, who has such honesty and warmth in what she's talking about. And also, she talks about it. She manages to do quite a neat thing, I think, where she feels like she has a real authority on the subject because of what she's lived through and what she's experienced losing her dad so young. Um, but also it's not, it's never like patronizing or condescending or, you know, you never kind of feel like you're being spoken to about something. Correct. She's very inclusive and it's not and didactic. Is no, it? she welcomes lots of other opinions and thoughts and um, yeah, just seems really open to sort of hearing from people and what they've been through and, and trying to help really, I guess that's where it comes from. Right. She kind of wants to do good. Yeah. Um, it's not kind of an ego trip. I almost wants. felt talking to her. I felt like she eased any of the anxiety that I was having about death and questions around death and her dad dying and that kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I felt like yeah. she almost gave you the permission. There are certain people in life who are really good at setting you at ease and there are others who make you feel like you've done everything wrong and she's definitely the former, isn't she? And that's why she probably breaks through so much. Yeah, and she carries it so well now, I think, too. I mean, obviously, again, as she said, when we spoke to her, it's been a long time forming that because mm. it's not as if she's had an easy ride at all. But um. I'm really impressed with how, yeah, just how well she carries it and how well she invites those conversations and doesn't seem to be dragged down by them. Because you, you, again, you'd imagine that if people want to talk to you about that all the time, it must be really challenging. But she does it so well, and um, yeah, I didn't get in too much of my own like neuroses, <laughs> maybe a little bit, but that's fine. <laughs> we'll save it for another time. I always feel this is part therapy for both of us, anyway. I think so. Yeah. yeah. I'm in mean, a podcast and not been able to make the best of it, is there? Yeah, well, I think, do you have that thing where, I mean, I sort of forget that anybody's listening. <laughs> I'm just chatting to you and then I'll, I'll stop a recording sometimes and be like, oh, what, have I nah, said? what did you do? Do you know what, though, yeah. honestly, I think that's the best way to do it. Mm. Yeah. You know I mean? It's like you've done stuff on stage before. If you suddenly think how many people are in this theatre, you'd collapse. Whereas by the time the lights yes. are on you, you can't see the audience. You just think, well, I know there's a crowd there somewhere. And then you get a mm -hmm. bit of feedback from the crowd through laughter or through a gasp or what have you. Mm -hmm, same mm -hmm. thing with this isn't it i think if you were to focus on how many people you're talking to you don't do that you're talking to just one person at any time aren't you yeah yeah always mm. yeah because i've had that sometimes with um some friends and stuff because i'd say like i'm quite shy really mm. in some ways and they're like oh but like you were on radio one like how have mm, you been mm, shy and it's like well because mm. most of the time it's like this it's just talking to one person <laughs> in a room and if you think about the other stuff i think well that's where there are some egomaniacs right but um mm. i never did so <laughs> <laughs> that's my excuse <laughs> so the book's called you're not you are not alone it's not you i don't want you to search with the hyphen it's you are not alone carrie ad lloyd and that is out right now and um how long have we been doing this podcast for do you know roughly would you have a guess um, 
did we start it during covid no way before did we yeah oh in my head i'm like oh we're one of those people who are like "Eh, let's do a podcast in the pandemic no 2019 we started this in the summer it was a hot summer of 2019 and i remember yeah and i remember coming down to london where you are and being in a very sweaty small box of a hotel room the night before we did david nichols for the first ever i don't want to listen back to that one i think i was a bit giddy (laughs) that's all right that's allowed too (laughs) yeah it's allowed you know this, that's another writing. reason we're doing this is mm-hmm. to get to interview people that we love, isn't it? and we love David. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, the reason I mention that is we've been doing it so for four years, mm-hmm. and um, I know podcasters has grown tremendously, and some of them now they've got whole production teams on them, and they've got marketing budgets and all the rest of it. And we just want you to know this is just me and Nat. It's just the two of us, and we do everything. We book the writers, we do the recordings, we do the research, we read the books, we edit the podcasts you can probably tell and um so it's just we are a two-person operation and so um we finally caught up with the rest of the world and we have enrolled on ko-fi.com ko-fi.com uh which is called it's, it's meant to sound like coffee and the reason they call it ko-fi apparently is because it rhymes with no fee and they don't charge a fee if you'd like to buy natalie and me a brew basically yeah so you can do this by going to ko-fi.com slash bestsellers podcast all one word co-fee.com slash bestsellers podcast all one word and then if you'd like to buy us a coffee if you're enjoying what we've done for you so far in the four or five seasons that we've managed and you enjoy hearing from these writers and you found a book through us that you wouldn't have found otherwise by not listening to bestsellers and you can buy us a coffee on there and we would hugely appreciate that because um it would be a nice way to know that you've enjoyed the the fruits of our labors yeah and also i think just a, a way to encourage us to keep going because we do really enjoy doing it, but it is really time consuming. And don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining. It's a privilege to be able to do this and speak to these authors. But you and I do have freelance day jobs as well. So often it's kind of like squeezing these in like mm. late nights or mm. uh, weekends. And um, yeah, it does. Well, hopefully our production values are all right, which means that it does take a bit of time to get each episode together by the time you've kind of planned it, booked it, edited it, done all the reading um, and uploaded it to Acast, which is what we pay for to put it out there. So, um, yeah, it would just be really well received if you want to buy us a coffee and say thanks. Now, the cynical part of me thinks that you might be thinking, listen to them asking us for a cut who do they think they are right <laughs> and if that's you then i just want you to know that in a couple of weeks time when we do curtis sittenfeld i've had to ban children's bath time in my house to accommodate that recording these are the sacrifices we're making all right surely that's no, no, some would think that that's uh is that a sacrifice <laughs> or a blessing <laughs> no no that will trust me because they'll go right they'll come running up to the bath and then uh my other half will go no stop stop daddy's recording and then mm. they'll go oh especially the younger one the younger one's learned that from something or other so instead of objecting with words he just goes <clears throat> and growls at you like a bear so yes. there'll be well, much had, um, going uh, just briefly before we okay so at the weekend it was my mum's 80th birthday um and me oh, and my sister, happy birthday, my sister and i yeah we organized a lunch with some of her friends um in the town where we grew up and it was quite nerve-wracking to organize it and to kind of get a bunch of 80 year olds all in one room and make sure it was all okay but what made me think of that just now was that it the conversation started with like oh Natalie you were tanach as a kid like you were such a difficult child and I was like oh okay thanks nice to nice to see you oh, too really? <laughs> I have empathy with you and yeah I don't think I was difficult I was just um boisterous now you see I mean we're going to go down a different road here but so if if I'd have been you as a boy, mm. would I have been boisterous or would I just have been confident? Maybe. I was always very confident and assertive as a kid and then had it knocked out of me as life took off. <laughs> By whom? <laughs> Give me an address. I'll go around there. The world. The world, Phil. <laughs> right. Um, so it's uh, ko-fi.com slash bestsellers podcast if you'd care to buy us a brew. And we'll be telling you a bit more about that. And as we kind of learn how to use it, then we'll offer some exclusive content on there for you as well. That's um, the plan. That's the plan. So we'll be doing that in the next few weeks. Next time out, Natalie Jameson, it is. It is. Uh, it is the only the second time this has happened, I think, on bestsellers. It is a returning author. Uh, Anthony Horowitz was the first person that we had back a second time. And now we get to welcome Jojo Moyes 
back to the bestsellers fold and what a delight it is. Yeah, and it's a brilliant comedy. It's a really good, if you need cheering up uh, and if you need to escape this world that we're all suffering in at the moment, this is the book for you. Someone else's shoes is the book. So you'll hear from Jojo next time. (laughs) 